This is an RNZ podcast. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Catherine Ryan, and here we draw on my conversations with experts on Nine to Noon to help you navigate family life. As youth mental health issues escalate here and globally, a clinical psychologist says it's imperative to listen to young people about what services would best help them. Kerry Gibson is Associate Professor from the University of Auckland and has done extensive research on the matter, including asking young people where they'd like to go for support. The result is her book, What Young People Want from Mental Health Services. She says services for youth are outdated, inhospitable and inaccessible to many and need a radical overhaul. Tēnā koe, Kerry. Thanks very much for your time. Kia ora, Catherine. Nice to be here. Can you explain or give us an overview of the research that you've done? Well, what we did, well, I guess the context, as you said, is that we're looking at a sort of a crisis in, in youth mental health, and we've all kind of been scrabbling around trying to make sense of what's going on and how should we be helping our young people. And when I say we, I mean, you know, professionals like myself, people working in the services, um, as well as like parents and educators. So we're aware of this problem, but somehow we haven't been able to kind of work out what's going to work, what's going to help young people. And it, it sort of struck me, and I guess this was the origins of my research, it struck me that as much as we were very well intentioned and wanting to help young people, the group of people who'd been left out of that conversation was the young people themselves. And it seems slightly ironic that we were talking about what it is that young people need, what's good for them, what should we be offering them. But we weren't kind of going to the young people themselves and saying, well, what do you want? So this project has sort of been going on for about sort of nine years or so. And it's when I say a project, it's a series of studies, so not a single study. But to, collectively, we've now interviewed over 400 young people across New Zealand, asking them questions about all sorts of things, the kind of stuff that causes stress in their lives, the things they're worried about, as well as, you know, where would they go for support? What, what do they need? What's working for them and what's not? Can you describe what our youth mental health services look like as they stand now? Well, I think that what we have is we have, obviously, we know a very uh, overstretched youth mental health services, a service at the tertiary kind of level uh, for people with more serious mental health problems. And we know that they're running very long waiting lists and young people can't get to be seen when they need to be seen. And then we have, you know, a kind of a patchy cover of what we call the middle ground, which is where people would go when they were feeling distressed. They may not necessarily reach the, the, the match the criteria for having a mental health problem, but that's the point at which we really want to reach young people because if we can get them in this, in this place where they first start experiencing distress before it becomes a mental health problem, we can make a tremendous a tremendous difference and it's sort of that what we call early intervention services which is the place that we we really have to put our efforts and then I also do want to say that it, it's not just kind of services out there because I think you know when you're talking about mental health um mental health we've, we've done this thing where we kind of said mental health belongs to the professionals they're the ones who know what to do and of course we've got expertise and of course when people have serious mental health problems this is where they need to come but there's a tremendous amount of work that can be done and is done. If we ask young people where they go for support, it's their friends. Sometimes it's their parents when they feel they can talk to them. It's the people in their local communities. It's their teachers. So they become 
sort of part of the solution, part of the way that we can deal with mental health problems. So I want to say that mental health is actually everybody's issue. It's not just the issue of, you know, the responsibility of our services. I'd like you to share more of what they told you, but first can we address an obvious thing, which you, you mentioned that the services were out of date. What is mm. the role of digital in the needs young people have? Um, many of us are worried about the impact of a digital life on their well, um, on their mental health and well-being, on all of our mental health and well-being. But let's face it, uh, this is the world um, in, in which they live and it is fundamental to their lives. Could you speak first to whether this is an example of where we are outdated, that there's not more available in, in, a, in a format with which they are so familiar? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we've had a, you're absolutely right, Catherine, we've had a very ambivalent attitude to to sort of uh, digital resources. You know, on the one hand, they're seen as great ogre, the cause of mental health problems. And, and yet at the same time, people are saying, well, maybe this is a way to get to young people, a way that young people, and a kind of space in which young people are kind of comfortable and familiar and, and, and you know, are more likely to reach out for help when they need it. Because we know actually less than 20% of young people who are experiencing a mental health problem will actually reach out for support. Um, so yes, digital resources do offer an amazing option because particularly they meet that need for sort of immediacy that some young people have. Um, you know, th this is a generation that's grown up feeling like you know, when I feel something, I can find, you know, if, if, if I want to know something, I can go online and find out about it now. I can talk to my friend right now in my bedroom. And so the sort of model where we say, well, come and have your appointment next Thursday at two o'clock isn't really, it, it doesn't make sense to them. One young person said to me, well, why would I want to speak to somebody next week when I'm feeling upset now? So our digital resources have the potential to reach people in the moment of need, in those dark hours when this young person is lying alone in bed and feels like nobody is there for them, you know, if there were digital resources. But we've got to think quite carefully about what resources work for them. And, and we can make exactly the same mistakes as we've made with our mental health services on you know when we think about digital stuff we can just assume we know how they work and this is what you need young people we will give you this form of digital intervention and that's where we kind of gone wrong up to now um and i didn't go into my project kind of wanting to explore digital stuff in fact i was a little bit skeptical because i've been a, a sort of a therapist who works relationally with young people i recognize the importance of that but I was surprised at how much young people told me about how, how digital resources were integrated into their lives, how digital communication was a part of their lives. But they're not just playing games. They're playing games with people. They're not just looking at their phones. They're talking to someone on the phone. And if anything, you know, there's this sort of image of young people, you know, kind of staring at their phones like the zombies, you know, kind of, it's a bit of a cartoon around that. But young people told me they were looking for connection. They were really looking for connection. So what they're looking for online is connection, is being able to text counselling, for example, can be really effective. Other kinds where you, you feel there's a person there that you're engaging with. And of course, young people are using online resources um, themselves to communicate with their peers and talk about what's worrying them and get advice and so on. So it's, yes, digital resources are great, but we mustn't reproduce the errors that we've already made in our sort of 
uh, offline mental health. Which resources. again are what the, the waiting lists, the just being the too many hurdles. Lists. You know, it's the old story: three seconds and and you move off a web page. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is, yeah. is some of those delays and distance, time distance, a part of those mistakes? What what else Absolutely. is part of them? What else are the mistakes that an adult design service for young people? Um, it's is exposing. too formal. It's too formal. Young people don't want to go in there and be confronted by a whole lot of kind of the sense of walking into a medical centre where things are done to them. Uh, they want to go in there and feel like it's their space, that it isn't, you know, that it has beanbags in it and music stations and access to uh, computers and free Wi-Fi and, and, and to feel like it's a comfortable space where they can be met by somebody who's going to respect them and is going to listen to them. And also importantly, our model of, of mental health is often, and I mean, set up this way for, for good reasons, and sometimes we simply have to do this, but what we do is, is we try and do this kind of assessment in the first couple of sessions of seeing a person in a mental health service. What's wrong with them? And are there any risks, you know, that we need to address, you know, immediately? But young people tell me they're not going to really talk to somebody until they know them. So we need these services to be kind of visible in the community, to be linked with the networks that young people already know, to be located in the places that they know, and to be sort of easily accessible. So in my fantasy, I have this idea of a, you know, a kind of a, a drop-in counselling centre, you know, off the back of a mall where kids hang out and they could just walk in and they could sit down and maybe talk to a peer support worker or immediately find a counsellor that they could talk to or perhaps somebody, you know, within half an hour or an hour of, of, of turning up, somebody somebody would speak to them. And then really importantly, one of the things young people are really afraid of is um, having all the control taken away from them. They have very little power in society. So they, they're given the strong message in society, you make your choices, you know, it's up to you. And then actually when you have sort of struggle with mental health stuff, sometimes that feels like it's all taken away from you. Suddenly people, your parents are telling you you have to go and see the counsellor and they're telling you what you have to do. Um, and that power imbalance is there even when counsellors or psychologists are trying to be more open. You know, we just have, have that power relative to young people by virtue of our age and our profession. So it's actively trying to shift that power relationship so that we make more space for young people to set the pace at which they want to disclose things, for them to set the agenda, for them to tell us what they want. They also don't want to just be diagnosed. Some young people do want to be diagnosed with a mental health problem because it helps validate what they're feeling. But, you know, for others, they just want to be known and understood, not just for the problems they're having. So, you know, the really good idea there is, is to say, you know, um, find out who I am, not what's wrong with me. So that's one of the first things that we need to do. So it's those adjustments. And look, there's some fantastic people working in our mental health systems. Um, so this is, I mean, no disrespect to them, but, you know, the system itself is cumbersome and hasn't changed for decades. What does it mean first for resources and where we... Um, put emphasis on stretch resources because, you know, all the way from the psychiatrists and the psychologists, we know there were shortages of both and the years of training that goes into that. But from what I'm hearing for you, maybe investment, perhaps further um, right, right back at the counselling or just the listening end of things uh, could be a place worthy of significant investment 
what does it also mean for the training of those professionals? Because, as you say, right down from sort of manuals of diagnostics, it is a sort of a formal medicalised approach often, all the way through yeah. to very different approaches, which is just sit down and listen. What does it mean for each yeah. of those two things? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I, I really do think that that's where we need to put our energy right now and our limited resources into kind of building up the capacity of the networks around young people, their families, their communities, their, their teachers, um, to kind of be able to have conversations with them about mental health. As you say, we sort of medicalize things so much and there's a space for that, you know, that, that's what you need to do when you're a mental health professional. But there's a huge gap in the middle where young people would simply gain benefit from being able to kind of talk to somebody who listened. And I mean, it's really interesting because I know there's a sort of a, a, a kind of a message out there, you know, talk to us. You know, we, we say to young people, like, talk to us, tell us when you're distressed. But what the young people were saying to me is things like, well, actually, that's what they say. But then when we try and talk about it, they, they try and sort of jolly us up. We, they try and say, oh, well, you're quite happy, though, aren't you? Or they try and, you know, kind of move us down the road towards greater success to be your best self. And how can you be better? Or how can you deal with this? So it's kind of like making that space in which we actually listen to young people and hear what it is they want to say without trying to fix it, but without also trying to tell them they need get out of it and get better now. And then if we need to, we can guide them to further support. But sometimes that's all that you need. It's that acknowledgement of feelings. And we hear this all the time when it comes to adolescents and young adults and parenting yeah. is yeah. acknowledge the feelings. You don't need to do any more than that sometimes. And even if you are going to go on to some advice, the first and important thing to do is to acknowledge what they've told you and, and that it's hurting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and young people themselves, I mean, if, if if some further sort of professional support might be warranted, like counselling at school or something, young people really have to make up their own minds to go. It, it doesn't help if they don't want to go. There's so many stories I heard about young people sitting in sessions with counsellors and they said, well, you know, I just answered in sort of one word sentences because I wasn't really going to tell them anything. And then they drop out of therapy or of counselling. We say, oh, they've got a problem. They don't kind of stick with it. But actually, that's their way of saying, actually, I didn't want this. So there's a space in which we have to kind of allow young people to come to their own understanding of what they want and then sort of shepherd them, walk alongside them and be with them. It's another issue with the system, what you've just said, because, you know, you've reached this point of need and the system is offering you an appointment with someone, as you say, on Wednesday of next week at this time. But actually, if the person's not ready to be doing the talking it's a waste of time it may be a week or a month or or or, or six weeks Um, and then that brings us back again to the challenge of resources um full stop really doesn't it i I am keen Kerry, for you to finish if you would on the insights of what they told you they are dealing with you're very wary of the perception that this is the snowflake generation you know it's the the kids of the helicopter parents and they're all so delicate they told you a lot and you have assessed a lot about the nuances of their particular pressures that's quite right. That's quite right. I think that's a really unhelpful way of thinking about young people to think of them as especially sensitive and snowflakes and so on. It's it's incredibly invalidating. Um, 
and, and also not accurate. Um, so I guess I, I would challenge firstly that, you know, when you ask any, anyone about, you know, what, why are young people so anxious or depressed, they, they tend to say, oh, you know, social media, it's a terrible thing. And yes, we all know social media has its problems. Um, I'm, I'm not saying it is, it, 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 it's not a difficult place to be, but I think it's also just a very easy scapegoat to put all the issues on. And it stops us from looking more critically at the way we've set up things for our young people and the very real difficulties they're facing. So I guess I've just highlighted three things that, that, that in my book, which, which, which they um, emphasized across a whole range of different groups of young people. And the first is about pressure to succeed, feeling this relentless pressure. It's not okay to just be average. You've got to somehow be exceptional. They're getting this message, be your best self, be remarkable. One young person said to me, you know, my mum my says to me, um, you know, you can be anything you want to be. You could be the prime minister. Why aren't you the prime minister? So that's the question that follows. If you have all these wonderful choices, why can't you do these things? But of course, we know it isn't that simple and those choices aren't available to everybody. And there's all kinds of constraints. So when they can't pursue what seems like this sort of trajectory towards success, which is sort of relentless and demanding, um, they feel like somehow they've let themselves down. And uh, parents will say things like, or adults often say, well, you know, it's social media, it's kind of making, it's encouraging young people to make comparisons between themselves and others. Young people did acknowledge that, but they also said a lot of the time it was their parents expecting this of them and also their teachers. So I think we really need to look at that one. Isolation is a big thing, you know, uh, I guess we've lost some of the bigger institutions that used to give people a sense of belonging, not all of those were a good sense of belonging, you know, but they gave some young people a place to feel they were a part of a community or, or, or an institutional, and, and now it's very much a sort of fragmented kind of society under, under I guess, neoliberalism where people feel like they have to stand on their own, they have to um, be okay as an individual and young people are struggling with isolation you know and isolation is not just being by yourself it's also feeling by yourself that there may be people around but if they don't connect with who you are and what you're feeling then you can feel very alone and of course those are the times that young people really need they say that that's one of the things that that can make a young person feel suicidal that feeling of being really alone um, and lastly, I, I, I kind of struggle with judgment and lack of acceptance. Um, so we've got, we, we look like we've got a very tolerant society, um, that people are allowed to have different identities in terms of gender, sexuality, different base for different cultures, bases, ethnicities, and so on. But in fact, there's still res strong residues of racism and bigotry and prejudice that affect young people. And it's an age where you're just kind of working out who you want to be and whether it's okay. Um, and so given we get this message of openness, you know, be who you want to be, you then make yourself vulnerable and you get subject to bullying or attacks or put downs or things that make you feel that you, you're not, it's not okay to be you. Kerry, wonderful. Come back and talk to us again, please, if you would. Kerry Gibson, her book is What Young People Want from Mental Health Services. She's Associate Professor at the University of Auckland.